Hello, welcome to the Bright Club Southampton podcast, episode 8. I'm your host, Dave Christensen. Thank you for joining us again, uh, or joining us for the first time, if this is your first visit with us. Thank you. So, uh, just as a quick summary of what we do at Bright Club, uh, so we run a comedy night roughly every three months, and at those shows we have, uh, as well as a couple of professional comedians, we also have uh, generally five researchers or academics or people with kind of interests in academic subjects uh, perform some stand-up about those interests and their research and their work. Then uh, for the podcast, uh, we bring those people back in and we get them to talk to each other and find out a bit more about them and find out a little bit more about their interests and how they ended up doing that kind of work and, uh, and where they see themselves going in the future as well. So for uh, this week, uh, we have uh, Jamal Gonzala interviewing Tom Hunt. Uh, so uh, Tom, uh, he was a uh, historian um, for uh, undergraduate and master's degrees, uh, but now, recently, he has decided that really his calling is physics. So he's uh, trying to teach himself maths and physics and go in that direction. Um so it was an interesting conversation with him, finding out about his interests in history, but also uh, why he's changing in what seems to be quite a large jump. So without uh, further ado, uh, and without any more spoilers about what's to come, uh, let's get on with it. Hello Tom, thanks Hello. for joining me today. Yeah, it's nice to be here. I'm glad you're here. I would like to ask you about your uh, background, like why you got into Bright Club. I'd like to ask you a bit more about comedy. And yeah, I'm just interested in us getting to know each other because, you know, I haven't really had the chance to. So, yeah. We live in, we live in the same house, Jamal. They don't need to know that. <laughs> so, you studied history. Yes. And my first thought was why? Why would someone choose to study the past? Isn't it all just known stuff? Uh, because I didn't do a maths A-level, so I couldn't study physics. I see. So you wanted to study physics rather than history? Yes. I see. But you studied history at all, so there must have been some attraction. Yeah, it was either that or geography, so uh, <laughs> essays or colouring in. Uh, well, it's not all, geography is not all colouring in. They let you use Microsoft Paint in second year, so... <laughs> Fancy. Mm, but the history, it was interesting. Okay. Quite interesting. What do you find interesting about it? Um, just learning why things were done. Like, why they happened, how they happened, and, uh, well... So, it sounds to me like when you study history, you learn about obviously the reasons behind events in the past does that also tell you a bit about the world around us as it is today like why we have the borders that we have yes, as nations like why we why the world is so messed up is that what you took away from your degree part of it as <laughs> i mean like the borders in the middle east and africa you know if you look at a map you're like oh they're all straight lines that's because uh, the people who used to run the, those places, i.e. us, the French, mm. uh, just uh, drew the borders during decolonisation, just ignoring the people who lived there. Wow. Which is why we've got all this, these uh, sectarian troubles in the Middle East and the, mm. Kur the Kurdish state. that they, oh, I'm talking nonsense. The state that the Kurdish people desire, mm. uh, they don't have one because we just drew the borders on ignoring... How long ago was that? Um, the 
the north then Kurds are north of Iraq and northwest of Iran, so that would have been uh, shortly after the Second World War. Hi, fact checking Dave here. Uh, so the borders of Iraq were drawn up shortly after the First World War with the partition of the Ottoman Empire, um, separating it into states including Turkey and Iraq. Uh, what Tom may, may also be thinking about was uh, the short-lived uh, Republic, Kurdish Republic in the north of Iran uh, that was uh, a Soviet-supported state uh, shortly after the Second World War that was then uh, broke down after... Um, American pressure led the Soviets to pull out of northern Iran. Um, so that state was then subsumed into Iran. Oh, wow, okay. So decisions we made about how to um, segregate these people back then still influenced the culture today. Yes. Wow. And it just shows, like, even, like, we can make mistakes as countries, but even when we no longer do that, the effects might last for a while, and does studying history make you see the world differently in that sort of way? Um, yeah, in some ways it does. I mean, I look around at the moment, I see a lot of history repeating itself. Mm. It's like, oh, I, I remember reading about that. Just, and that's just like the headline in, this, the, headline in the morning, is mm. I remember reading about that when it happened in, I don't know, 1954 or 1938. It's just the names are different, right? Yep. <laughs> and different context is occasionally a little bit different. Mm. But for the most part, you can see like the same things happening over and over again. Yeah. Wow. I um, I could I can see like how that influences how you see the news. And yeah, I. Do you um, do you ever feel it's disheartening? Like, do you think that humanity is doomed to repeat itself, as they say? Oh yes. There's a, the you know the saying history is doomed. Those who do not study history are doomed to repeat it. Those who do are doomed to watch impotently from the sidelines as history is repeated around them. Suddenly, your dry sense of humour makes a lot more sense in context. Mm. <laughs> perception in studying history um, is uh, might inform your view and it might make you more educated so even though you said you wanted to go and study physics are you are you happy that you studied history uh, yes yes I'm glad I feel like it helped me develop a lot as a person hmm. I learned skills and I learned to see the world in a different way which yeah. is always valuable I think that really deserves emphasising because mm. we talk a lot about the sciences and academia and these kind of projects like Bright Club, but the humanities can really develop our worldview in a way that, I don't know. Mm. I think one thing I like about our conversations is you have that balance of seeing the advantages to both science and humanities and 
It'd be better if more people had that, right? Yes. <laughs> Let's not go into the whole funding situation. That was actually going to be my next question. But trust me, I can make it fun. So you did say in your set that um, part of the reason about the science-humanities divide and the stigma might be because scientists get a lot of funding and the humanities don't. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. But one thing I wanted to ask you about is, well, first, in psychology, we struggle with funding more than the other sciences because we're not treated like we're sciences. Um, but we have a joke, and the joke is, uh, if you want funding in psychology, say that you're trying to cure Alzheimer's because everyone wants to fund Alzheimer's because we all have rich relatives who are suffering from it and rich people like to fund projects. And I just wondered whether, because clearly there is some funding in the humanity, uh, in the his history specifically, um, I wonder... If, is there any way that historians try to get funding? Like, how did they, the, the, the history PhDs that do exist, how do they get funded? Like, what, what tactics do they use? Um, I don't know about how they go into getting funding because I never actually applied, but mm. I know that pretty much all funding for the humanities in Britain is done through the Human Arts and Humanities Research Council. Yeah, so the government. Yes, which yeah. is the government, and their budget was slashed under the last Conservative government, right. so... It's like, in the case of when I was going through my history degree, uh, when I came to do my master's, there were three fully funded master's degrees across the whole Faculty of Humanities in the University of Southampton. Yeah. The following year, there were none. Mm. They had more funding for PhD students than they had for master's. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a dire situation to, indeed. Um, I'm just wondering, though, like... I wonder, like, maybe you're the wrong person to ask because you didn't decide to continue uh, a career in researching history. But what what do you think? Um, what do you think the advantages into training more PhDs and academics in history? Um. Hmm. Hmm. It's okay if you. Don't yeah, have that's, any a, that's something that I don't have so many thoughts on at the moment because I didn't yeah. uh, plan to continue yeah. in history. Mm. As even though, even having studied history and understanding more about how it can inform our worldview, I know what some academics do study, and it's even having studied similar stuff, it's yeah. difficult to see how that will inform our worldview. Like I once attended a seminar on uh, the in, in Viennese interior design in the eighteen thirties. <laughs> And even having seen that, it was a case of, okay. Mm. So yeah, if anyone's expecting there to be jokes about how the sciences hate the humanities and the humanities hate the sciences and everybody hates the English students, then you're going to be disappointed. I don't understand why those rivalries exist. I know it has absolutely nothing to do with how much easier it is for the scientists to get money. <laughs> Nope, definitely not. I don't even know what made me think of it. So, I might have to get a funded PhD at the moment aren't going terribly well. But if I talked about that, then it wouldn't be a comedy evening anymore. So I'm going to move on. One thing I was aware of, though, is like the kind of humanities projects that inspired me the most when I was looking at them were ones that overlapped with the sciences because science is my one true love. And, for example, like, I know there was some interest in historical texts that previously evaluated that people were mad because they heard voices. Mm. But we know from recent findings in psychology that, you know, people who hear voices might not be mad. They might just be sleep-deprived, for or example. Or they might just be listening to other people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
they might have a unique way of interpreting our inner dialogue that we all mm. have. Um, so basically, maybe one thing I was just wondering is like maybe the value of history is like we sometimes need to reevaluate kind of facts we've already decided that come from history. Like for example. I know the history of religion. Arguably the scientific method there. It's like we, th mm. we, ha we thought this, oh, new evidence has come to light, therefore mm. right, that suggests it's wrong. Mm. Well, exactly, and that link between the scientific method and historians, I see most of all, I read a little bit about Leo Tol Tolstoy. I didn't read mm -hmm. any of his work, but um, I've read about it. War Peace him. is something like <laughs> the size of you. <laughs> or you. Mm. <laughs> but... Um, do you know much about Tolstoy? Um, I know he wrote War and Peace, mm. and I know he was involved in uh, the Crimean War. Mm. Something about he, he was aristocratic. He was aristocratic, so he had owned serfs. Mm. Mm. Because Tolstoy felt like he wanted the history to be a science. That was his mm. belief. He thought that we should treat it with the same amount of rigor and the scientific method. And he wrote War and Peace, and I don't know if you know much about it, but War and Peace is actually a lot a really dry historical text mm. and partially is like novel. Mm. And it's, the BBC mm. did an audio dramatization of mm. War and Peace over the course of about three days a few years ago. They just ran the whole thing. Yeah. But the reason it's so important, it retains its long form to Tolstoy was because we needed to go into the level of historical detail to understand the context. Mm -hmm. So what I'm kind of asking you about really is just, um, do you uh, do you think that kind of looking at people's lives in both a kind of personal way, as Tolstoy wrote about his kind of, uh, the people in, the Rus in Russia at the time, combined with a kind of factual approach, does that help you understand as he wanted to with War and Peace? The context of what it was like to live in that period, combining both kind of novels and stories and also combining kind of historical data. Do you think that would help people understand the context of what it's like to live in certain countries at certain times? Sorry, what, <laughs> sorry, what was the question? Do you, do, you, do you think that approach is useful in order to understand the lives of others? There? Yes, because a main source of uh, historical detail is the stuff that was written at the time so that includes things like the diary of Samuel Pepys mm. I mean because we're going to have access to Facebook and stuff then future historians are going to look back on our time and form a very yeah. specific view of it yeah. probably a warped one because mm. we only put the best parts of our lives on that's Facebook true. and the internet and that's what Tolstoy was trying to avoid he wanted to talk about the mundane and warts the kind and of, all yeah and I think there's worth in that and so to me, I think how I see uh, history after thinking about it a little bit before this podcast is like might help you empathise with different types of people who live mm -hmm. in different eras and different civilizations. Yeah. And did that was that part of the kind of personal development you were talking about that it helped you perceive how people live differently? Yes, I think so. History, yeah, cool. Uh, so the thing I like about history is that there's is that there's an awful lot of it, <laughs> and there's more to it added every single day. I mean, I, I specialised in the British Empire and learning how much we all buggered up the world, <laughs> mostly by colonising America. <laughs> so I've taken the. Uh, look, I'm pretty sure there was more than that. Oh well. But yeah, I've taken the liberty of bringing along some uh, edited highlights with me tonight because I don't have time to go through it all. Uh, 
Here we are. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have time to do to make one of the ones that actually rolled down the aisle. So, anyway, yeah. So I've got I've picked out a few of my favourite historical facts, which I'm going to regale you with. And hopefully, you'll like them. But judging on the fact that no one here is a historian apart from me. <laughs> Did you know that Queen Victoria is the longest reigning British monarch, having sat on the throne for 63 years, with the longest case of constipation in recorded history? So, after watching your Bright Club again, um, I was there, but it was nice to watch it on the video as well, um, I saw that you specialised in the British Empire um, in, your, in your dissertation, presumably, back when you studied history, is mm -hmm. that right? Yeah. Why that area specifically? Um, mainly because it was more... Because it was more recent, I felt it was more relevant to the world as we know it today. Mm. Because the British Empire was enormous and influenced so much of the world. Mm. Okay. Plus, when I did my Masters, the syllabus, you could either go very British or very Jewish. And uh, I decided to go with the British Empire because in my th throughout, throughout my degree, I studied a variety of different periods of history, like the ancient to medieval to modern, and I'd found it was the modern that I was most interested in when I looked at the, East, the way the East India Company established itself in India, Arabia, and further east. The East India Company? Yes. I don't know this. Could you explain? Uh, the British East India Company... Um, hang on, give me a second. Um, back after Vasco da Gama discovered the uh, route around... No, hang on, I need to go start going back further than that. Mm. Right, uh, you know where spices came from? Uh, is it India? No, further east than that. Really? Uh, it came from like the spice islands around Indonesia. Mm. It used to come, only get to Europe via the Silk Road. Yeah. And therefore it would pass through uh, Uzbekistan, China, uh, and Venetian merchants before it ever came near Britain. Mm. But in the 16th century, the Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama discovered the route around the Cape of Good Hope mm. and sailed into the Spice Islands. So all of a sudden, the European countries had access to maritime trade. So they established trading companies that were going to go sail oh. around the south of Africa mm. and go to India and the Spice Islands. Uh, Britain was fairly late to the race, so they found, arrived to find the Portuguese and the Dutch already heavily established there. Mm. There was a series of wars between the British and Dutch companies which led to the British being pushed out of the Spice Islands. Wow. So they looked to ventures elsewhere in the Indian Ocean, uh, most notably in India. Mm. Cool. And how does this relate to you uh, studying the British Empire again? Because uh, that was... The East Indian Company appeared around the time of the first British Empire, before, well, right at its start, before Queen Elizabeth, well, the time of Queen Elizabeth I, just after Christopher Columbus discovered America. Mm. So this was the time when Britain was establishing the 13 colonies. Mm. It then persisted throughout until 1857. Mm. Uh, by this time, Britain had the Raj. It was only the Indian Rebellion. Well, it was called the it's called the Indian Mutiny by the company, but in India today, it's known as the First War of Indian Independence. Mm. Uh, the company defeated the Indian uprising, and but that led to the company being disbanded by the Victor by Queen Victoria when she assumed the title Empress of India. Because mm. I mean, so what we have is the first col 
not colonies as such, the first factories and trading posts being established in India in like the 1620s, and Britain granted India independence in 1947. Okay. So it's India has been part of the British Empire since for pretty much its entire existence. Mm, mm. The British Empire's existence, not India's yeah. existence. I just find it so strange that we could have such strong ties to a country so far away. Mm. Like, but studying history, you kind of put the pieces together, the context. Like, yes. I had no idea about the Silk Road and the spices. Um, like, mm. and it's kind of funny to me because it feels like that just happened mm. because people wanted to make their food tastier. Yes. Is that, is that fair? Partly. <laughs> I mean, back when I, uh, like, the East, Indi the East India Company was founded before tea was in Britain, mm. before we knew about tea. Mm. Uh, so, in something like the 17th century, I have quite a lot of, well, now I have quite a lot of tea in a drawer downstairs. <laughs> and in the 17th century, that tea would have been worth far more money than it might have been today. Mm. It would have been worth something like several, at least several hundred pounds. Right, so, and, and, and the reason you want to go into physics now is because you want to travel in time and sell all that tea and be a rich gentleman. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> So, like, any old money is worth more today. When I did my master's dissertation, I was looking at a famous explorer, Sir Richard Burton, who uh, is famous for disguising himself as a Muslim and making the pilgrimage to Mecca, where he uh, got a full house and won a box of chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> Heavenly Virgins, 72. The history of how we frame money as well, because, like, what does mm. money mean to us? Is it how much we can eat? Is it how much we can, you know, like, is it the kind of houses we live in? Because really it's... Is, isn't it quite hard to define what being rich today means comparing it to this time that you were talking about with tea? Like, uh, histor do historians agree on how to kind of translate money across time? I don't know. I don't know about that exactly, but I know mm. that... Uh, due to things like inflation, mm. one pound is worth less today than it was in 1867, mm. and it was in 1542. Okay. Mm. Worth less in terms of its relationship with uh, groceries, or, or how does it Intrinsic work? value, I think. Okay. Because I think something like, uh, like 1,000 pounds in 1942 is worth something like one and a half million today. Okay. No, not 1942, like 1739. Oh, interesting. Hmm. But, I might um, be getting some of the details wrong there. Like that's not an exact figure. <laughs> there is an online converter where you can go and find really? it. Really? Oh. Yes. Um, cool. But I don't quite know the full development of money. I, like, I don't know when pounds sterling came in, for yeah. example. I just wonder how we determine money's absolute value. You know, across yeah. time, like well, mo in modern day, money is just something which uh, you are supposed to acquire as much of you <laughs> as possible as you can. <laughs> I see the funding situation. Humanities hasn't been kind to you. <laughs> oh no, it's just my, my cynical view of society. Yeah. Chairman Mao is so named because of his strong, very strong resemblance to a chair. <laughs> yeah, I know what you were thinking I was going to say. Yeah, Admiral Lord Nelson used to get very touchy when people said, I, I, Captain. <laughs> Because he only had one eye. <laughs> oh, good grief. Um, you mentioned in your set as well a famous explorer called Sir Richard Burton. Yes. And he described himself as a Muslim and went to Mecca. Yes, he did. Why did he do that? 
why do explorers do anything? He was a he was a scholar, and it had never been done before. Mm. So he dis- so he disguised himself as a Muslim and made the pilgrimage to Mecca, because uh, back then non-Muslims were not permitted in Mecca. They st- I don't believe they st- they are in mm. they still are. The, I should know, but I don't. Is that a pl- <laughs> is that a play on your name? <laughs> yeah, go on. Uh, never mind. Mm. But. Um, Yes, he was an explorer. He uh, worked with the Royal Geographical Society later in his life to try and discover the source of the Nile. He had a whole feud with the man who actually discovered Lake Victoria, John Hanning Speak. Mm. Cool. Would you like to be Sir Richard Burton, explore and be a scholar? Would that be fun? Not Sir Richard Burton specifically, Why because not? I've read about his life. So, <laughs> Did he have some vices? Um he was sort in some ways he was described by Victorian uh, society as a pornographer mm. and uh, looked down on for that regard. So what, like he himself? or uh, Because he <laughs> translated uh, a number of Arabian works, such Ooh. as the Arabian... He translated the Arabian Nights, oh. for example. And uh, I think there was another book. I can't remember its title, but it was... Uh, uh, or was it the Kama Sutra? I don't think it was the Kama Sutra, yeah. but he read, he wrote, he translated another book, somewhere, I think the Scented Garden or something, but uh, uh, it had some explicit content which was too much for the Victorian milieu. Hi, uh, Fact Checking David's back. Uh, just to confirm what Tom said, uh, Richard Burton did uh, publish a translation of the Kama Sutra, uh, and also, I believe, the uh, book that he is thinking of when he said the scented garden uh, was called the perfumed garden. <laughs> nice. Mm. It, it seems like our libido can motivate us to do quite a lot of things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, lots of British explorers actually spent a lot of time with the Horn of Africa, which uh, is saying something. <laughs> he was a lovely man and not at all arrogant, especially considering his nickname. <laughs> mm. Uh, Kim Jong Un, no, what? Kim, the famous American model and waste of space, Kim Kardashian, <laughs> was named after the North Korean dictator Kim Jong Il. I mean, they've got so much in common, haven't they? Millions of fanatical followers, an online game that's worryingly well designed, <laughs> and dodgy sex tapes. Yeah, you mentioned earlier, like, um, that now you're more interested in physics, was it? Mm-hmm. So what, what, what inspired the shift? Um, I was possibly thinking about career paths after I finished history, because I was thinking about um, where I could go, what I could do. Then I had a lot of friends in the science department, so I wound up talking about science with some people, mm. and it's a case of, oh, I, remember, I, wanted to, why did, I wanted to study that. Why did I want to? Oh, yes, because it was really interesting. <laughs> When I when I wanted to do my first degree, I said I'd like to do physics, and then everyone turned around and went, "You're not doing a maths A level, and you got an E at AS level. Do you really think this is a good idea?" And kept repeating that until I said, "All right, it's not a good idea. I'll do something else." <laughs> yeah, I, I can I see that. One of the one of the reasons I would like to move into science is because it's more forward thinking. Hmm. It looks for it looks forward more than history, which very much looks back, and hmm. especially with the world as it is now, which I find quite depressing, as like, oh, as I mentioned before, history is repeating itself. Yeah. I prefer to do something that looks forward mm-hmm. as a career. That's, that's really interesting, because, like, even if you've studied history and you see that, you know, there are lots of issues that reoccur, 
um, you you know from science that the world can change. And yeah. there are lots of stories in science about scientists who had to basically reject the norms of their time in order to seek progress. And does that does that is that something that interests you about potentially going on to be a scientist? The idea that you can bring in a kind of new a new thing that history can't predict. Yes, I think mm. that's something that I find quite interesting. What areas of research attract you the most? Um, and why? I'm not entirely sure at the moment because I haven't really studied them. Okay. Because I lack things like the mathematical technique. Mm. I mean, yeah. I've been I've taught myself a maths A level, and at mm. the time of recording, I'm in the middle of the exams. So. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us again. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right before we started recording, I was bashing my head against some standard deviations before I figured out where I was going wrong. Been there. Which necessitated some more bashing heads going, You're an idiot, you're an idiot, you're an idiot. You're definitely on track to be a scientist, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's uh, not always a happy life, for it can be interesting. Mm. Uh, Admiral Akbar in Star Wars was named after the Mughal Emperor Akbar in India, the last ruler of India before the British took over. Now, I think you can all work out where I'm going with this. How did we, the British, wrest control of the subcontinent from the from the Emperor Akbar? Well, what we did was we established trade bases across the subcontinent and gradually reinforced them until one day the Maharaja woke up and discovered that the British were the most powerful force on the subcontinent. It would sound a lot better if it hadn't come as a complete surprise to the British as well. <laughs> so that was not a trap. The Trojan War, you all know about the Trojan War? The Trojan Horse, which is a misprint actually, because the Greeks were actually let in through the back by a door by some disgruntled prostitutes. Just about physics, I mean, you said you had a lot of friends who uh, talked about science, mm. but partly because I know you, I know physics is what attracts you the most, and I wonder, what, what makes physics so special to you? Um, because, mm, ooh, this might be delving into the whole... Uh, <laughs> Oh, science is just a branch of this blah, 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 thing. Um, it's your opinion. You're entitled to any opinion you want. <laughs> when I, well, back when I was in school, I mean, I did triple science, then I chose to drop biology for AS and A level. But mm. in terms, I, so I was studying chemistry and physics mm. AS. Chemistry, I had an awful teacher mm. who uh, just who literally copied the syllabus out onto the board, which mm. we then had to copy down into our books and did not explain the maths at all. Mm. So I had no idea what I was doing with chemistry. Physics was easier. Mm. And at that time, I was more interested in things like the quantum phenomena and space. Mm. Mm. So to my mind, physics is uh, something like fundamentally studying reality. Yeah. Whereas chemistry is more applied. Yeah. And biochemistry, and bio biochemistry, bioscience, <laughs> biology even more applied than that. Yeah. So, yeah, like, I, by physics, I'm going straight to the building blocks of mm. what makes up the world. I mean, protons and neutrons. Chemi chemistry doesn't go any lower than that. <laughs> physics goes right on down to the quantum level. I think, I think you're right. And, uh, yeah, I can say as a human scientist, I don't think there's anything, uh, a, an issue with that. I think we all know that we're uh, pretty applied and mm. we know that the physicists are off up in space, um, mm. it's, it's, sometimes properly. It's learning <laughs> how the universe works as opposed to how society works, mm. which I'm going to be very cynical right now. <laughs> You've done that. Which, yes, which is the case of uh, <laughs> if you want to win, have more money than anyone else. And if you want to unite people, give them a common enemy. There you go, a quote from a historian, Tom Hunt. Mm. <laughs> 
he's got the uh, got the knowledge to back it up. Um, but yeah, no, I uh, that's really cool, and I think I think physics is. Um, I think having been involved in a lot of events about physics and having a lot of friends who study it too, I think it like history changes your perception too. Like it, you start seeing the world differently. And I know you haven't come so far in your studies, but have you found since starting to think about maths and physics more that you perceive the world any differently? Um, not too differently at the moment. Hmm. Do you, um, but what do you think about kind of the scientific method and applying it or? I think it should, I think it should be applied more. Hmm. Hmm. Element of scepticism and yes, this because I mean we get a lot of things in real in real life at the moment. It's just like like, it, like something on the internet. Oh, we trust it yeah. instinctively. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I can tell you that even scientists do that quite a lot. Mm. Like because we every scientist I've ever met doesn't apply the method twenty four seven, and maybe sometimes it shouldn't, but. It kind of pushes us in the right direction, mm. I feel. But there are some things that it's difficult to apply the scientific method to, like yeah. which phone to buy, or <laughs> uh, what's your favourite tea? I mean, do you have to, like, psycho, like do a graph of tea-ness? <laughs> I could see you doing mm. that. <laughs> do you, and it, oh, okay, so uh, what should we use as our baseline? Let's go with English breakfast, Twining's English breakfast, none of your tat. Uh <laughs> On this graph, shall we use polar coordinates or Cartesian coordinates? <laughs> what will be on the axes? Shall we extend it into the imaginary plane? What would imaginary tea taste like? Well, let's let's ask the uh, people of the Real Ale Society. <laughs> because, uh, I assume they do stuff with the complex and imaginary ale societies. Yeah, so. As a control, you'd need to. Yes. <laughs> Did you know that Wales used to be in India? That's completely true. It used to be an island off the coast of India that was uh, taken over by the Portuguese in 1535, then gifted to the British in 1661 when Charles II married Catherine of Braganza, and uh, then leased to the English East India Company. Now, because it was so good at growing tea, and of course, for the British Empire to rule to go, the tea must flow, uh, the British decided, in a complete denial of the facts that still serves the Conservative government to this day, <laughs> to tow Wales from India and bolt it onto the side of Britain. It completely bugged up the climate, made it unable to grow tea, so Wales is just now just a soggy bit. But there is a historical reason why it's so easy to veer between the two accents. We've talked a lot about history and physics, and the one dimension that you didn't cover in Bright Club is, um, of that we haven't talked about, about Bright Club, that is comedy. So why did you do Bright Club at all? It was there. <laughs> what do you mean? Um, I can't remember exactly who told me about it. I think it was probably you. Or was it Nickel? Hmm. I don't know. I'll, oh, no, I think it was Nickel, because I, I joined Comedy Society when I came to university, because I grew up listening to Radio 4 programmes, like Just a Minute and I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, so I already enjoyed hmm. making people laugh. Hmm. And at the time when I was just before I came to uni, I had a friend who basically threatened me with death if I didn't join a comedy society when I came to uni. So I did. And then, uh, well, we were at a science room meeting, mm. and uh, Nickel was just, uh, mm. you, hang on, you're in comedy society and you're interested in science. Would you like to do Bright Club? 
<laughs> nice. At least that's what I remember. So. Mm, that's, a, that's a good enough in that's a good enough historical document for me. <laughs> uh-huh. But um, uh, it's citations or it didn't happen. So you mentioned that you liked radio comedy. Like, do you feel there's a big difference between? stand-up and radio comedy or do you are you similar in terms of your sense of humor and performing um yeah i'm very similar in terms of performing Hmm. but radio there are some constraints because as in things you can't say Hmm. like you can't swear or be too explicit on radio Hmm. and there have been a number of comedians in comedy society who i shall not name whose idea of a punchline is to swear or make an explicit reference to the genitalia. Mm. I mean, our last comedy show, we had three three sketches where the uh, punchline was someone telling someone else to F off, mm. yeah. which, is not a cle- which is not really a joke, to be honest. So it sounds like you prefer radio comedy than stand-up. Is that fair? Or? I think you can do radio comedy as stand-up. Mm. Because stand-up... It's got a lot of variety. I mean, a good friend of mine, Dan, he did a set that won the Tickle Pig Student Comedy Award. And he did not swear at all. during. Mm. He didn't make any crude jokes during mm. his set. It was all clever, mm. anecdote-based humour that would have been perfectly radio-friendly. Mm. Good, good. Yeah, the, it shows a kind of um, almost maturity if you don't have yes. to go down that route. Um, at least that's my opinion. Mm. Um but, uh, it's probably why we, my uh, rate, my comedy doesn't go down so well with the student <laughs> audience. <laughs> yeah, do you um, do you still want to try stand up though? Are you still into it? Yeah, I'd still I still like to do some stand up. It's mm. just a little difficult to find time at the moment. Yeah, of course. So I mean, Bright Club is always on a Friday night, and I work Fridays, so I can't get time off to come and see it. I'm going to end with one deep question. Oh no! Why do you like making people laugh? Because it makes me feel good. <laughs> That's a good enough answer. Short and sweet. Mm. They Thank smile, you. I smile. Makes me Proves feel good day. when you make me laugh too. Erwin <laughs> mm-hmm. Schrodinger, the father of quantum mechanics. He's a terrible name for a child, by the way. <laughs> Just ask his brother Newtonian and his sister Classical. <laughs> and the bone idol one who hasn't got a job yet, Lagrangian. Which is a joke for the physicists out there. See, I might have done history, but I'm not a complete moron. Yeah, and I think I've nearly reached the end of all the stuff I had written down, so... uh, uh, Just to end, did you know that the Vikings are widely recognised as the greatest civilization in history because they had the greatest civilization in history? Achievement, not the greatest achievement in history. They discovered America and kept quiet about it. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to me in the middle of your exam season, and I hope they all go very well, and best of luck to you in your future career as a physicist. Thank you for inviting me on. It's been an experience. (laughs) A good one. (laughs) Hi again. Uh, Thank you for listening all the way through. Uh, And, of course, thank you to Jamal and Tom for talking to each other today. Uh, Well when we recorded it. Uh, and thanks for the food and drink at your house. So Alv and I use this space here to uh, promote something that we have coming up or uh, something like that. But uh, I can't think of anything that I need to be promoting at the moment. Um, so all I'll say is uh, please head over to our Facebook page um, or our Twitter 
or send us an email, just say hi, um, brightclubsutton at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, we're, we're beginning to put together our next show that'll be either late July or early August. So uh, if you think you've got it, what it takes to get up and tell some jokes, please get in touch with us. Let us know that you're keen. Uh, we would love to have you. Yeah, that's, that's all I've got to say. So uh, be good to each other. Uh, have fun. I hope to see you soon. I love you. Bye-bye.